From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Secret meetings and encrypted conversations. Those claims are at the heart of a lawsuit filed by two Democratic state representatives against their own party. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was long in coming. The best way to frame it is it's meant to be a loving intervention with an alcoholic that just can't change and won't change. Then, what keeps Michael Hancock up at night? The outgoing three-term mayor of Denver talks about crime, homelessness, and the drug epidemic. Plus, he reflects on the city's unprecedented growth during his tenure. Then one day, feeling pretty good about the direction of the city, I got stopped on the 16th Street Mall by a gentleman who said, Mayor, what about those of us who are being left behind right now? Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's not often that you see lawmakers publicly take on leaders of their own party. But that's exactly what's happening in the State House, where two Democratic representatives have filed a lawsuit against the Democratic and Republican leadership. They're alleging major violations of Colorado's open meetings law. CPR's Benta Berkland and Andrew Kinney are covering the suit, and they're with me now. Hi, Benta and Andy. Hi, thanks for having us. Benta, who are these two representatives and what do they claim has been happening? They're both Democrats and both are serving in their first year at the Capitol. But what's interesting is that they come from opposite ends of the political spectrum within the caucus. So Representative Elizabeth Epps is one of the most progressive members. She's from Denver. Representative Bob Marshall is from Douglas County and is the most conservative Democrat in the House. And essentially, this complaint alleges that lawmakers of both parties have been holding a lot of closed door meetings to discuss policy and strategy in violation of Colorado's open meetings laws. Andy, what does that law say about open meetings? What are the rules? They're pretty strict rules, at least by the text of it. It says that whenever two or more members of any state public body get together and discuss public business, well, the public should be allowed to attend that and be part of that. So even if it's just a conversation, technically, mm-hmm. there's also a rule that says when there's a meeting with a quorum of members, you know, a substantial number of members of any body, whether it's a committee, et cetera, the public has to be given what's called full and timely notice. So they have to say, hey, we're having a meeting and you can come. Public bodies also have to produce and share meeting minutes uh, to describe what they discussed when it's official business. So this lawsuit says that House leaders, it actually calls out both Democrats and Republicans, says they've been calling together House representatives for lots of meetings that aren't publicly announced, aren't open, and aren't recorded in any way, and that they're deciding a lot of what happens at the legislature in these kind of unofficial meetings. What happens at these meetings? 
Well, lots of stuff. You know, the lawsuit alleges that, for example, members of committees have been getting together and committees are really important in the legislature. They've been getting together to privately discuss what happens at upcoming hearings. They may even, uh, I believe, tell talk about how they they vote is the allegation, kind of planning things in advance, working out concerns, making sure that the official hearing runs a little more smoothly. And they're also saying that the entire Democratic and Republican caucuses uh, have been getting together. That's large numbers of representatives to discuss policy. And I'd note that this lawsuit is about more than these in-person meetings. It also alleges that lawmakers in both parties, like Andy talked about, routinely break the law by having substantial public policy conversation using these encrypted messaging apps. So apps like Signal, where messages erase themselves after they're received. So that mm. means there's nothing left for the public or journalists to request access to. Now, have either of you talked to Epps or Marshall about why they believe these problems are big enough to sue over? I mean, I think it's fair to say it's a pretty major step to take their leaders to court for this. Yeah, definitely. Well, I talked to Representative Marshall uh, about the lawsuit, and he said it really was a last resort. He had proposed an interim committee to meet over the summer to come up with a, a resolution to the concerns he and Epps had and others, but he said that just didn't happen. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was long in coming. The best way to frame it is it's meant to be a loving intervention with an alcoholic that just can't change and won't change. Benta, so what changes is he hoping this intervention leads to? Marshall actually said he hopes this doesn't make it all the way to a trial or a hearing where a lot of dirty laundry would be aired. Instead, his goal is to use the lawsuit to negotiate a good end to the situation, is how he put it. And he wants his colleagues to realize that they need to follow the law and come up with a workable solution. But if they can't negotiate a solution, then he hopes the court will order the legislature to stop, to, sorry, not stop, start obeying the open records laws. <laughs> it sounds like that would lead to a pretty major change in how the legislature does its business. Yeah. You know, it's not just that they're saying you need to be more transparent. They also say it's time for the legislature to really think about the Colorado open meetings law itself and the way that they say it might need to be changed or updated. You know, there are some ways in which it, it may not be it may be need it may need to be updated to meet with kind of modern times. They're saying uh, mm. Epps and Marshall in a statement said that some of the, quote, mandates seem incongruous and often unworkable and the modernization's long overdue and that their goal is to usher into the legislature a workable, open and transparent governmental framework. And even though the suit mentions legislative leaders, I'll add that Marshall told me he doesn't think this is a problem that started under the current House Speaker, Julie McCluskey. She's only been in the role for one session. And as he put it, this problem is, quote, decades in the making. I have no moral fault with any of my colleagues, and especially the leadership. The current leadership, our speaker, she inherited this swamp. This swamp has been a seeded putrid swamp for decades. You're at the Capitol pretty much every day that the legislature meets. Have you had any sense that the things they're alleging were going on? 
Yes and no. The press corps is certainly aware that some meetings happen behind closed doors, but I don't think we all knew the full extent of what this lawsuit is claiming. And one thing that was surprising to read about in the lawsuit is the assertion that legislative aides and interns, who are often some of the youngest, least experienced people at the Capitol, are told to hide these meetings on a lawmaker's calendar. And that aspect in particular really bothered Marshall. The first week these young 22-year-olds show up to change the world and all that and immediately are being told yeah we just gave you that orientation on open meeting laws and uh start hiding these meetings now you know i have no problem crushing the spirit of young people but you should do it over time not the first week they show up so i mean he's joking of course but you know he said this was one motivation for taking the legal step And I'll add that, yeah, like sometimes there is a cat and mouse aspect where we will hear from other lawmakers or reporters that they're discussing such and such a topic and trying to work out what happens in the committee meeting. And we go launch off through the legislature to find if there really is multiple members of a committee talking about a a bill somewhere. And I will add, it's also become clear that these secure messaging apps do play a big role. You see lawmakers texting while they're in committee and then Maybe they'll suddenly take some action on the committee that makes it seem like, well, Mm. where did that come from? How did you get that idea? (laughs) And the question for me, though, you know, of course, they're allowed to text, but it's how often are they using these disappearing, disappearing messages? You know, we don't know what we don't know because we can't get access to the messages that are automatically deleted. And that's one thing Marshall pointed out, that there is no record of these messages. And so for for him, that's the biggest issue here. Mm. Right. Like That's the whole point. Now, Andy, have legislative leaders responded to the lawsuit? Sure. So House Speaker McCluskey and Majority Leader Monica Duran, those are the two top Democrats in the House, issued a statement saying they are committed to open and transparent government and ensuring a fair public process. Uh, They said they're still reviewing the complaint. House Republicans kind of blasted the lawsuit and said it's all what people hate in politics. It's infighting. It's costly. But then they also said the Republicans welcome to conversation that will update state laws on open meetings that try and keep up with rapidly evolving technology, such as, again, that Signal secret messaging app. Well, I just want to return to how unusual this situation is. So you have two Democratic House members suing their Democratic leaders. Were you surprised to see this all happen so publicly? Yes, but we did have some indications throughout the spring during the session that there were some deep divisions within the Democratic caucus. Representative Epps in particular tweeted a lot about how unhappy she was with how the legislature works and some of the things her leadership had done. And we heard that from Marshall as well, but filing a lawsuit is certainly a pretty big deal here. And I talked to a First Amendment's expert, Jeff Roberts. He heads the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition. He said the lawsuit's unprecedented in part because instead of it coming from the media or the public pushing for transparency, it comes from two lawmakers that have insider knowledge and probably a lot of evidence to back up their claims. That's Mm -hmm. the power of this lawsuit, that it's coming from legislators who are part of the process or they're trying to be part of the process and maybe they feel like they're shut out or they don't want to be part of communications or meetings that they feel like are in violation of the law. And I should add quickly that these lawmakers are not seeking punitive damages or anything. The lawsuit's asking the judge to order a stop to this alleged behavior. Vinta, Andy, thanks both of you. Thanks so much. 
that was Thank our, you. <laughs> that was our state house team, Benta Brooklyn and Andrew Kenny, talking about a new lawsuit alleging House leaders have been consistently violating Colorado's open meetings law. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Indy 1023 with things you can bring to the underground music showcase. Bring some suntan lotion. That's that's definitely a must. Fanny packs and or hip bags. LED gloves. GoPros are good. And with all the shouting, singing, cheering you're most likely taking part in, Lip Balm is always a good festival friend. That's just some of the things you can bring to this year's UMS. The Underground Music Showcase, July 28th through the 30th. Three days, multiple stages, hundreds of bands, and one app to help you map them all. Google Play and at the Apple Store. Tickets, weekend passes, and weekend four-packs. UndergroundMusicShowcase.com. Info on where we're set up, nd1023.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Michael Hancock ends his 12 years as the mayor of Denver on Monday. He recently sat down with Denverites Kyle Harris. Two decades from now, when people are going to talk about Mayor Michael Hancock's legacy, what are they going to say your biggest accomplishments are and also the biggest policy misses? I, I think that people will really look at the resiliency of this administration um, and, and just be amazed at how we were confronted with unprecedented um, challenges and really came together to pull the city through each and every one of them. Whether it was the Great Recession when we came in, um, certainly the the unprecedented growth that came our way, uh, um, and ultimately, you know, again, the pandemic, the social unrest following the murder of George Floyd, the immigrant issues, and even before that, the the uh, uh, four years of Trump and then the migrant issues that hit. I, I You know, this city and this administration has proven to be the most resilient I've ever seen over 12 years. And, and that's just an amazing, amazing uh, moment. I think that, you know, in terms of policy misses, I, I think obviously people always question, how did you respond to that on President Grove? Um, but, uh, you know, and, and the affordability issue, I think, has been the one that we have been most challenged with as a result of that growth. Um, but all, as with most um, interpretations of missed policy, people don't understand the full, you know, I think what I would call the full chronology of how those issues come about. Um, you know, the growth, the myths around affordability, are not typically um, city issues or at least affordable housing isn't, but we responded to it. Um, but you can't get up on top of that kind of growth, not 30% like we saw in 10 years. It just, it was magnanimous and and unfortunately it has impacted our, our affordability as a result of it. Was there a moment when it kind of dawned on you like, we are growing way, way fast, and the consequences are big. We remember that? Yeah, I do. I remember the conversation with Paul Washington at the time, our executive director of uh, economic development. And Paul came to see me in 2013 in one of his regular updates. And he said, Mayor, we have, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a amazing dynamic happening in Denver. One is um, we're growing exponentially. And two, we have a run on affordability, on affordable housing. And it's going to create a problem if we don't find a way to get up on it. And it was the first time, probably late 2012, early 2013, when we had that conversation. It was the first time that um, any mayor of Denver's history took general fund money and put it into the, well, put it toward affordable housing. Um, and you may look at that, the history of our, our chronology of our administration. We had a three by five challenge and we started allocating money for affordable housing. 
not really understanding the size and scope of it. Um, and it would hit us around 2014, 2015, going, oh my, this is, I mean, we a lot of that came with it was awesome, but a lot of the results, which typically are delayed, uh, the impacts of that growth that we're seeing today. Talk about some of the conversations at that point you were having with people in the community who were maybe facing those economic pressures. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the economic pressures were, um, you know, it depends on where you were in the community in terms of your level of readiness for, you know, because you got to remember our economy began to really take off and people were really enjoying Denver being, we were named the number one city in America t- two times uh, in consecutive years, uh, best place to live in America. Um, a lot of things that people go, oh, you're not that. I mean, but we were there. We were we were the best place to start your career, best place to start a business, um, best place for entrepreneurs. We were there, best place to raise a family. And then one day, feeling pretty good about the direction of the city, I got stopped on the 16th Street Mall by a gentleman who said, Mayor, uh, what about those of us who are being left behind right now? And I said, you know, share with me what you're talking about. You know, those of us who are unable to get the jobs that are coming with this new economy in Denver, those of us who can't afford to live here anymore, and it was, you know, that moment where it was like, you know what, we got to always make sure that we bring people along. And I think this is where the concept of equity came in mind. Not everybody is ready, right? And not everybody starts from the same place. Policies and opportunities don't fall on people at the same rate. Um, and, and it began me, I started thinking about more about our policies and making sure what about those who are not as ready and prepared to, you know, to take part in the new economy that's in Denver, whether it's technology or whatever was emerging at the time. What do we do about those? How do we make sure people get retrained and begin to catch flight in this new economy? How do we address the issue even more deeply on the issue of affordable housing? It was the first time I started thinking about a more permanent funding base for affordable housing. So it was that kind of thing where you can almost begin to see my shift in my conversation. Yeah, we're doing great, but we got to make sure we bring everybody along in this economy. Landmark city projects have, have been something that have defined mayor's legacies. For Pena, it's DIA, Webb, the park system. What is it Sports for you? Complex, Sports Web, Complex, Web. Well, yeah, yeah, Webb did a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, you know what? I think for me, people may look at it differently, but I'll tell you, I look at the redo of Brighton Boulevard, the rebuilding of Brighton, and the attraction of new private uh, development around Brighton. I... I I, and just a whole new area changing that corridor. I called it the corridor of opportunity, the, the um, promenade that's along the river and the largest investment in South Platte River in Denver's history, over $300 million, National Western, and keeping the stock show in Denver. It was leaving when we became mayor. So I think, and, and then um, you can look at the, um, it was just funny, I just had Parks and Rec folks in here going, this administration added almost 20% more new park space to the city of Denver's inventory and took rec centers to areas that didn't have them, Central Denver, Westwood, um, and, and others. So we, we, we did things that, you know, we redid all of Sun Valley, called the poorest neighborhood in Denver uh, when I became mayor. So we have changed it with housing. It's getting a brand new park, lakefront, uh, riverfront property um, for people who are some of the lowest income in the city. So, I'm, but I'm proud of those groundbreaking moments, proud of the expansion of the airport and convention center. But I think when you look at Brighton Boulevard, you see kind of, and what happened in Union Station under our watch, those are the things that I'm, I'm most proud of.
Aerotropolis was this concept that was touted widely. What happened to the project? What happened to the word? And what if that did get finished and what needs to be finished? Aerotropolis was always um, laid out to be a multi-decade effort. And um, if you go out to the airport today, you see the Aerotropolis under construction. It is happening. Um, so a couple of things happened. One, we got a groundbreaking agreement, regional agreement, to develop what we call airport city and around the airport. Um, that was that was unforeseeable, unfeasible um, before I became mayor. Adams County didn't care much for Denver and Denver didn't care much for Adams County. We were not going to work together. They were like, give us back our, if you're going to try to build around it, give us back our land. And that's how we started the conversation. You're not getting your land back. And if we want this airport to flourish, and if you want to flourish, we got to find a way to jointly work together to make it flourish. And three years of negotiation, we came up with a regional deal to jointly market and jointly um, promote development in the area. Today, you see multiple, multiple development efforts going on, tremendous amount of speculation. But there are a lot of cranes out at the airport, around the airport today. You see neighborhoods that are expanding. Green Valley Ranch is one of the fastest growing neighborhoods in the city. Um, that area east of Piccadilly, um, which is known as High Point, is flourishing. Look at Commerce City. Look at Reunion. Look at those areas out there. They've sold more homes and and new commercial space than in many uh, regional areas of town. A lot of that had to do with regional partnership and really the promotion of Aerotropolis. As you're leaving office, what's keeping you up at night? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, probably no surprise here. Uh, gun violence in our city, which we are not uh, um, been immune to the national growth of gun violence around major cities. Um, I'm still every day concerned about people experiencing homelessness in Denver and how we continue to address that. And a lot of, I think a lot of mitigating circumstances around that, uh, the growing fentanyl challenge and opiate challenge and meth challenge in our city. Um, we have just become a major city, a global city, and then, uh, unfortunately a lot that comes with that has befallen our city. And, uh, but we're, we're equipped to deal with it and we've got to continue to deal with it. We just got to stay together as a city and have leadership that understands we got to do this together that as a mayor, as a council, city council, you can't do this alone. It's, it takes all of us to, to be engaged and be a part of the conversation as well as implementing of solutions. Do you plan to continue to have a role in the city and serve the city in some capacity? And if so, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take some time off and just get away from it all for a while and disappear. I don't think uh, Mayor Leck and then Mayor Johnston needs my face and presence. Um, it's certainly a lot easier to begin the process of running the city and be seen as the leader if the predecessor is not, uh, if your predecessor is not constantly in the face and doing media and things of that nature. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way and just take a low profile and, in the city of Denver and be quiet for a while and really kind of begin to heal from the trauma of <laughs> 12 years of you know, 10, 12, 14 hour days and six and a half days a week and, and breathe a little bit and connect with, reconnect with my children and my grandchildren and, and do all that. So, but I'm going to be endeavor. Um, I'm going to work on issues nationally. I have some passion areas, voter rights and race relations that I'm really concerned about and really want to engage in. So I'm going to do those things, but I'm no more on a national level. You described this trauma of the last 12 years, which no doubt had to be the case. I'm curious, through those years, how did you take care of your mental health? How did you stay sane? I mean, you dealt with 
threats. You dealt with attacks. You dealt with all sorts of stuff. Yeah. How yeah. do you do it? Well, I, first of all, it's a journey. And I, when I say trauma, I mean it in a, you know, the boldest sense of the word and a, not a necessarily a negative sense of it. I mean it just kind of like capture the constant uh, fluidity of challenges and opportunities that come. Um, but, you know, it's a journey. I mean, self-care is a journey. I, you know, my faith is very important to me. And so, you know, making sure I always took time for faith um, uh, and, and the exercise of my faith and I stay close to my faith and I stay close to prayer. Um, exercise, I exercise regularly. Um, instead of going to lunches, I learned early in the administration or my term was stop going to sit at those lunches um, and I would go exercise. Now I go exercise, I come back to a quiet, private lunch here and just kind of get that break in the middle of the day that allows me to 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 uh, breathe a little bit. And and being willing to get away from it on the weekends when you can, you know, say no to some things and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just relax. Yeah, I will tell you this. One of the most, more prophetic things that um, one of my predecessors told me as I took this job was that what people don't measure is the human toll of this role. It's an honor. It's a privilege to serve in this role. I don't have any complaints about being elected. Don't complain about it because I asked for it. Um, but recognize that there's a human toll. I lost a marriage. Um, I lost friends uh, in this thing. Um, and other mayors have done the same thing. They'll come before me and tell me that we lost marriages. Um, you know, we lost you know, relationships with people we cared about. And they told me when you're finished, you'll look around and the people who are around you are going to be different from the people you're going to start with, including people you consider as close friends. And so, yeah, there's a human toll. And so you have to take care of yourself mentally. Um, but I got to tell you, we saw, and I, we engaged in things, we had challenges that no other mayor saw. Pandemic, you know, the unprecedented social unrest that occurred um, as a result of the George Floyd murder. Um, again, four years of Donald Trump. This was... This was, there were times when I sat back and said, this stuff sucks. This is hard. And particularly during the pandemic, where I had to step back and say, now I'm being impacted mentally. And I had to breathe. I had to find new ways to think about, you know, just take care of me and slow it down a little bit and just kind of figure it out. It's tough. It's tough. It was tough. Oh. People were dying. You know, I stopped counting at 19 friends and family or, that I knew that lost. And uh, it was tough. Talk about some of the campaign promises or one campaign promise that you made 12 years ago that you pulled off that you're proud of and perhaps one that didn't pan out because of who knows what. Oh, well, you know, easy. Um, I made a campaign pledge that I would, in two years I would have a direct flight to Japan. And in, in a year we got a direct flight to Japan. Uh, and that was one that when I remember saying and everybody kind of gasped <laughs> in front of a I think a chamber lunch. It was a it was a campaign forum actually, and I, I made that pledge. I said we will get a direct flight to Japan, and we'll do it within. I think in my first term, I said, and we got it done. We got at least announced in the first year, year and a half of being in office, um, and so I was very proud that we were I was able to to deliver that. But I got to tell you, I knew that there were over twenty twenty five years of effort to make that happen, and. Um, I was very sure to make sure I, I celebrated Federico Pena, Wellington Webb, uh, John Hickenlooper, all who have gone over to Japan saying we need this direct flight, uh, and all the business community that, that played a role in as well. Um, let me see. If what Was there a, a campaign pledge that I made that we didn't necessarily pull off? Um, I think we accomplished all of our campaign pledges. To be, and I'm not driving you braggadocious. I think we met, the, we met our commitments, or at least the promises we made. 
I think that, you know, and this is anecdotally, but, you know, one of the things I believe is, that, you know, um, we we're all Denver. I think there were times when people didn't feel like they were part of the, the new Denver. And, and that's what I'm talking about is as we became our new Denver, did we really bring everyone along? Or did we should have been a little more um, in tune with the fact that people were not, not everybody was going to be prepared uh, to go. And, and, you know, but we, I think we corrected quickly. Um, and began to turn, but it's like turning a ship. You know, you gotta get people trained. You gotta give them believe and trust that what you're trying to do is trying to is to be inclusive and to make sure they're able to come along. And that's a decades project. That's a decades project. I mean, we I learned a lot. Well, you know, for example, people talk about gentrification and voluntary displacement, and we went and studied that stuff, right? And came to find out that it doesn't just happen. This is this is decades of things. Be- getting the shift that most people don't it's a slow very systemic that thing that it's changed it happens and most people don't even know this is happening until all of a sudden you look up and where you had a majority african-american community now it's a lot of white people and people are properties have gone through you know the roof and value wise and it's like what did this happen and you think back and so we had some neighborhoods that when i came in we looked at some neighborhoods and they actually brought me a map and said mayor this neighborhood's gone. It's gentrified. And I think it was like Curtis Park, for example. Mount Bello, gentrified. Um, but this neighborhood is evolving. And here's what we know. The city knows before anyone those things that are triggering gentrification. People are planning to build buildings. You're making investments doing bonds. You're putting in libraries, rec centers, parks. Those are things that trigger gentrification because you're making the neighborhoods very attractive to people. Um, and so... You're bringing in jobs. For example, Curtis Park, surrounded by hospitals or within walking distance or very short rides on a bus to, to a hospital or close to downtown, right? As downtown began to recover in the 1980s, late 90s, 80s, and early 90s, people wanted to live close to their jobs. So they started buying up houses. So it's the systemic small things that we see that we're not paying attention to. And then all of a sudden, you got a wholesale change. And, and people go, where did this come from? Who triggered this? And it's decades in the making. It's a long way of answering. No, I appreciate it. But it's, I appreciate it. Some of the lessons we learn. We can be smarter and more strategic. Your administration launched the urban camping ban. The constitutionality of that was tested. Your administration then pivoted toward sweeps that have gone by various names over the years. This is a policy that John Pravinsky, the retired head, of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless described as a failure, doctors from Stout Street Clinic, University of Colorado Anschutz, Denver Health, they also describe it as a failed policy. Homelessness has multiplied in your time in office and encampments are throughout the city. Looking back, are there changes you would make to that policy? Was it the right one? What's the legacy? You know, here's the deal. There's no greater responsibility as mayor I have than the safety and well-being of the residents of our city, visitors and residents of our city. I have not been so closed off to the policy, or at least alternative to the policy, that has been absolutely no. Uh, what the Anschutz people or Pavinsky uh, or whoever else says, you got to change this. It's not working. Misunderstand is That's not our homeless policy. That's our homeless policy is not to go sweep people off the street. When we go in and clean up those encampments, we are addressing health and safety 
threats, risks to not only the people in the encampment, but people who live, walk, who are visiting around those encampments. Every time I think I want to reconsider our approach to being aggressive and making sure we clean up encampments, I think about the pictures and the data that the people who've gone in to clean them up have brought to me in terms of the risk, health risk, um, you know, propane tanks that are there. And if anything goes wrong, enough to level an entire block, city block of people just sitting in their homes, not in my, I mean, not even concerning themselves with the people camped outside, but just in their halls, all of a sudden you got an explosion on your block that takes your house down, puts you, your children, you know, grandparents in danger. Um, the amount of environmental hazards that exist in there, the felonious assaults that have occurred, the uh, human trafficking that has occurred, that's occurring in those encampments. I think if people truly saw, as we have seen, the stuff being pulled out of those encampments, they will clearly understand what the city is doing. Uh, if they would ask the question. Uh, and the other thing, the second thing I would tell you, nowhere in the country has allowing the encampments been a solution to encampments. They get progressively worse. And I have studied them, saw them face to face, eye to eye on my own in Portland, San Francisco, D.C., Los Angeles, uh, Chicago. They get progressively worse in terms of the the environmental hazards that begin to pile up and exist. You can bring portal potties, you can bring cleaning. They just, because of the diversity of the challenges that people are facing in those encampments, they don't improve. It just get progressively worse. And so when I see them, when I saw them, they'll say, I said, we will not be those cities. We're not going to let that happen here. And so while we, they, they move to other locations, I agree. I wish they would take us up on our offer of services and, and temporary and transitional shelter. Um, but many of them don't. And we've got to face the fact that many people who are saying no to us are uh, dealing with substance abuse issues and mental health issues. And it takes time. We've got to be repetitive. But we've got to continue our efforts to try to help them as best we can. Johnston says he will end homelessness in four years. I'm curious what you think of that claim, and is it possible? Listen, I know, I've know i known Mike Johnston for over 20 years, and he's someone I deeply respect and like. He, I consider him a friend. I'm glad he ran, and I'm, I'm glad he won. I think he's going to be a phenomenal mayor. Um, with that said, there are realities when you walk into this office. Even someone like myself who served two terms on city council, uh, who spent an inordinate amount of time in this office, meeting with mayors, consulting, advising, giving ideas. Um, I didn't understand until I became the mayor the true realities of your limited resources, um, the real dynamics of communities who push back on the concept that you're going to bring a, uh, a, a you know, tiny home village to my community. We found it out. Um, it's not as simple as people think it is. Very complex. You're dealing with a lot of human um, condition issues, and people are concerned about uh, those conditions coming to their communities uh, and the unknown, and they push back and they push back hard. And two, it's not like Denver has a lot of land, and the assessment of, of uh, our inventory of land that we could possibly do these sort of things on, we did six, seven years ago. And that land that we had, we either had tiny home villages or have them, or we have, we have built uh, help to build affordable housing on those pieces of land or shelters. And so there's no land. We've done it. So I, I think uh, whether it was Mike or Kelly who come to this off, they were going to see the realities of what it really means to manage this. So 
I wish him the very best. I'm not the doubter. I love those kind of grandiose. If you don't have, you know, big, hairy, audacious ideas, then what do you have to pursue? So go do it, and hopefully you'll do something that no other city in the world has been able to do, and that is to end homelessness. So since 2010, Denver's paid an average of $1 million a year in police-related settlements, law enforcement settlements. That figure reached $3 million in 2022. What's your legacy as the head of law enforcement and public safety efforts in Denver in an era when taxpayers have been paying to settle so many law enforcement misconduct cases? I think wherever you have police, you're going to have law enforcement settlements. And to your point, you're talking about how they've increased. And so the first thing with the experience that I've had, I would ask the question, what was it that happened that increased uh, um, uh, the settlements that you have? And that's the on President Reckoning, on, on just uh, on, on fair, uh, excessive force cases and, and the George Floyd murders and the kind of protests that we have never seen in the streets of Denver. And unfortunately, um, you know, some of the people who came down looking for into confrontation got it. And unfortunately, there was some mistakes made on the police side, and we're paying for it as a city. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate. Um, but it's it's what and by the way we're seeing it all over the country cities the same type of settlements that are happening we are we are seeing we have a phenomenal city attorney's office that's doing everything they can to wade through these we have a phenomenal financial uh, finance office that's doing everything have done everything they can to prepare us for these potential settlements uh, to get through it um, Denver's prepared to continue to litigate protect and to serve as stewards of the trusts of the treasury uh, while also. Uh, recognizing that mistakes were made and we're going to have to make some things right here um, as best we can going forward. I think the legacy will be some bold things that we did in public safety. One is uh, brought in the first police chief from outside departments in, in 60 years. Um, we went head-to-head and eye-to-eye to address the issues of excessive force and said there's never a time when excessive force is okay. Uh, we revamped our excessive force policies um, we re, uh, which by the way was based on discipline matrix, uh, comparable discipline. We got rid of all that and we're going to take it case by case. Um, a lot of things that came out during George Ford and saying, these are the, the top, what was it called? The eight things that, um, city should be held accountable for. We had already accomplished seven, um, seven and a half of those things and uh, went back and said, okay, we can do the, we can pick up this other half that we don't have, you know, like duty to report those things that we had already addressed in the city of Denver, um, uh, so so forth. So I think that we we completely redid, I went in and did a whole new review of the Sheriff's Department and uh, stepped down old policies, brought in new policies, discipline policies, and whole new operations around the Sheriff's Department, a new culture in the Sheriff's Department. Um, those are the things that I think 10, 15 years from now, people look and go, there were some bold things that were addressed. Uh, during the Hancock administration around public safety to kind of do away with and bring forward um, really the expectation. And if I, I'll tell you, you know, things like, you know, the non-lethal response to people in crisis in the city, sending clinicians instead of police armed officers to deal with someone having a crisis, star, co-responder, those were groundbreaking. Those were groundbreaking. And now a lot of folks are focused on Denver studying how we brought I get an email or text from a mayor almost every week asking, can you send me information on this? I want to know more about your STAR program. Uh, we were, Denver was just spotlighted. We didn't even know it at an international conference. 
And all of a sudden, I've got all these emails from mayors saying, talk to us about STAR. I want to know. I'm coming out to take a look at this. So I'm proud of those things. So I think those are the things that people will look at and go, they took a comprehensive approach to dealing with crime and law and order in our city, uh, including revamping our, our, our county court and making the most diverse court in the state of Colorado, uh, including recognizing that it's got to be a whole approach with the economic, um, mental health, education, all the things necessary to understand how people find themselves involved in crime or ultimately becoming victims of crime. And what do you wish people in Denver knew about you that we don't? Oh, man, I I love this city. I mean, I just, I have a real passion for Denver. I love this city. And that got me up every day. That got me up. Even during the most difficult moments of serving, the, the love of the city, you know, was almost like, you know, just that loved one who sometimes you just, just makes you so proud you can't stop smiling. And other times when the relationship just goes bad and you're just angry, but you know, it's unconditional love and that we'll be back at this at some point. And uh, I just love the city. And I never, uh, I, there wasn't one day I got up and didn't want to come to work. The memories of being in the city, being in this office, um, there, every day something reminds me of something. I'm like, oh my God, remember that moment? Um, you know, I just, we got a lot to unpack in terms of memories when, we, when I finally start writing a book. Top memory. Wow, top memory? Top memory, when Barack Obama asked me to jump in the beast with him and uh, riding down in the motorcade with him and Governor Hickenlooper at the time and watching Hickenlooper tell joke after joke after joke. At the time, we were in the middle of a, uh, an effort to attract the, the uh, uh, Patent and Trademark Office to Denver. We were going after it. A lot of cities were going after it. We were in Capet, but yet we got the President of the United States sitting right here who is whose uh, department is leading that effort and Hickenlooper's telling these great jokes. Funny, but we got like a ride from Buckley Air Force Base all the way to the, to at the time, Pepsi said it, that we got to get, at least put it in front of them. And uh, I couldn't get a word in edgewise because of Hickenlooper. But finally, I broke in when there was just a moment of brevity or quietness. And I said, Mr. President, <laughs> I said, we're in the running for patent and trademark office. It would be honored for Denver to have it here. And we want it. And I would be honored if you have any questions, call me directly. I want this thing. And uh, he turned to his staff. He said, you got that? <laughs> and uh, Denver got awarded. I'm not saying it was because of that conversation, but I'm glad I got it in front of him. Anything else you want to speak to today? Tell the people of Denver, thank you. Gave a grown man his childhood dream. Um, the privilege and honor to serve, to serve you, but to also serve with you. And uh, we've come through some amazing moments together that, quite frankly, will probably never be repeated, and certainly not in our lifetimes, in terms of the unprecedented moments we had. And uh, it's been a real honor being a foxhole with the people of Denver. Thank you so much, Mayor. Thank you, guys. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock speaking with Denverites Kyle Harris. Hancock leaves office Monday after three terms. New Mayor Mike Johnston will be sworn in the same day. You may read Kyle's interview at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years, a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A new rule could change how more than 8 million acres of public lands are managed in Colorado. The Bureau of Land Management is considering putting conservation on equal footing with other permitted uses, like ranching and oil and natural gas. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess and as our Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim found, there's a lot of disagreement over whether this is the right approach. Mark Rober has spent nearly his entire life under the shadow of Mount Lamborn, an 11,402-foot peak that looks over his family's ranch in Paonia. I see you guys still got some snow up on Lamborn. Yeah. Yeah, the old-timers always made bets on whether it would last to the 4th of July. This year it's going to make it, for sure. Rober's great-grandfather staked out this Delta County property in 1889. Between the southern boundary of Rober's 1,100 acres and Mount Lamborn is an alphabet soup of public lands, USFS, SWA, and importantly for this conversation, the BLM. He's long held grazing permits, but isn't sure what this new rule could mean for the future. It would ensure that the BLM considers conservation on par with other uses, from recreation to mineral extraction and includes the creation of new conservation leases. Well, the, the fear is, and, and I think it's legitimate, is that with making conservation use a use to where they're issued a permit for 10 years, it looks to the livestock industry as this is a way to do away with livestock grazing. Rober is president of the Public Lands Council, which advocates for cattle and sheep producers. The BLM says grazing and other uses will be able to continue under the new rule. But he feels there's enough ambiguity in the policy that it's impossible to support. And ranchers aren't the only ones concerned. Oil and gas groups have criticized the BLM's proposal too. Rober says protecting other uses is imperative. It could swing very, very badly. And of course they're trying to tell everybody that no, that's not what, what the intent is. Well, let's uh, sit down and clarify the intent before we, before we put it out there. <laughs> but while some are dubious, Bill Irvin is among those who thinks this change is long overdue. His property sits in the shadow of another mountain, this one being Mount Garfield in Mesa County. And his connection to the land also goes back to his great-grandfather. He's headed to California, and he was on the, on the train coming down the canyon, and he uh, stopped in Glenwood Springs, and a land agent got on. And the land agent talked him into, uh, into getting off in Palisade, because you can grow anything in Palisade, was the story. Irvin's land sports a small orchard of fruit trees. He spent his life on or adjacent to BLM acreage, and Cindy, his wife, worked for the Forest Service. He said he was surprised by the rule, not by what it would change, but that it didn't already exist. I thought in the protocol for deciding what to do with land use that they would have an equal weight to conservation. But it turns out that that's not true, and I'm, I'm really glad that the current administration's trying to change the rule so that it includes conservation and preservation as part of what uh, they should be thinking about with BLM land. Irvin sees the scars of overuse across western Colorado. Gesturing east on Interstate 70, he notes the impact of oil and gas in the region. I just saw recently aerial photos of Garfield County, especially along the interstate. It's just pockmarked every 10 acres with another drill site. So 
yeah, we need to think more about what we're doing and not just take it all in this generation and ruin it. 2,000 miles east, lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are having similar debates over the draft rule. And like most issues, it's taken on a decidedly partisan tinge. That was on full display at a House Natural Resources Committee hearing in June on a Republican bill that would make sure the rule, or anything like it, never goes into effect. Republican bill sponsor, Representative John Curtis of Utah. In the West, we know far better how to manage these lands and have done better for decades and decades than any bureaucrat in the East Coast could ever imagine or ever dream of managing these lands. Many Republicans argue that the draft rule oversteps the authority Congress gave to the BLM to manage its lands for multiple uses. And their witnesses, like Kathleen Skama of the Western Energy Alliance, point out that the law defines those uses to include grazing, mineral exploration and production, protecting fish and wildlife, recreation, and timber. Conservation is a goal. It is not a use. However, according to the language of the law, the BLM is not limited to just the multiple uses that are explicitly mentioned. Conserving these special places is not a radical idea. It's what the American people want. That's Democratic Representative Raul Grijalva of Arizona. And as more and more people want to utilize public lands, the agency says a framework for conservation, which they define as essentially protection and restoration, is needed. Democratic Representative Jared Huffman of California agrees. So that uh, does not seem radical. It seems long overdue and sensible. Three of Colorado's Democratic House members, Diana DeGette, Joe Nagoose, and Brittany Pedersen, have all signed on to a letter supporting the rule. If there is one point of bipartisan agreement, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle say it's important that their constituents are heard and their views taken into consideration. They ding the BLM for not holding hearings in rural areas of the West. Colorado State BLM Director Doug Vilsack did travel around the state talking with stakeholders about the draft, and his message was this, it's only a draft, and their suggestions would be important to change it for the better. Please get beyond uh, kind of your first reaction to this and look at the words in the rule and tell us how you think they can be changed, because I don't think there is really much debate uh, about the need for actual guidance for how we do conservation in BLM. He added, with over 150,000 comments on the draft, he does expect changes to the final rule. But that likely won't be enough to satisfy opponents in Congress. Chair of the Natural Resources Committee, Republican Bruce Westerman, says they might not be able to pass a bill to stop the rule, not with Democrats controlling the Senate, but he'll use what tools he can. I will be in contact with my friends over at the Appropriations Committee and have an amendment in the Appropriations Bill that says no appropriations shall be used to Uh, implement this rule that the BLM is proposing. And congressional fights aside, even if a final rule does get implemented, opponents say you can expect legal challenges. CPR's Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C., and Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. Read their reporting at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.